they recommitted themselves to God. They were so overflowing with gratefulness and with thanks that they recommitted their lives to God. And when I was thinking and reading this passage and thinking about it and praying about this talk this morning, I was really, really challenged. And God said to me, how can you commit to a God that is so small in your eyes? And he said, you and this church do not have a big enough picture of who God is. And it really, really challenged me. And I'm really sorry if it makes you feel uncomfortable. Not, because I think we all need to reevaluate how big our God is on a regular basis. Just can't get the staff. So I found a few verses about committing to the Lord, and here's one from Proverbs 16.3. It says, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. Nehemiah committed his plans to the Lord, and guess what? His plans succeeded. He was successful. But what does this really mean? He said he would watch me. <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 says, For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now, the word committed in this passage from, from 2 Timothy is, it actually means, it's parathique, and it actually means to deposit, as you would deposit money in a bank. So think about that. You deposit your money in a bank. What does the bank do? Does the bank just lock it away in the vault? No. The bank uses your money, it invests your money, and it makes more money. Whatever you deposit with God, whatever you commit to God, will be used for his purposes. When we commit our lives, our homes, our wealth, our children, our time, whatever we commit to God, it doesn't just sit there not doing anything. It gets used. Jesus said that those who give their lives away will gain them. When we give stuff to God, when we commit to God, we get it back with interest. It's never wasted. It's never lost to us we get back more because his plans are so far beyond what we could possibly imagine that committing our stuff, our lives, ourselves, our will to him is always going to be the best use of what we have every single time. Now, and I thought about the whole story of rebuilding the walls. I thought about it, uh, it really it's an, an analogy for the building of the kingdom, isn't it? Um, and when we, uh, we want to reach the community, we want to restore the community, we want to build the kingdom in our community. To do that, we need to build the kingdom within our church. 
But we can't really rebuild the kingdom in our church until we are built up in God's kingdom, in faith and in trust in God. Yeah? Keep going. One more. So when we build ourselves up, when we build our faith up, then it starts to permeate and affect everything around us. And I found this verse, Proverbs 25, verse 28. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And what this has a sense of, the, 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 the term self-control is, is translated in some versions of the Bible as a man who does not have control or the rule of his spirit. And it's, it's, it's more a sense of someone who lets their feelings rule their life instead of their faith. And so we need to rebuild the broken walls in our faith, if you like, in our trust in God, in order to move on in, in, and be able to commit to him fully. We can't commit to something we're not trusting in. So I found this lovely analogy um, of the faith train, but I've turned it around and it, I've put the feelings train. So here's the feelings train. And with the feelings train, our engine is our feelings. The thing that drives our life is our feelings. Those feelings could be um, fear, they could be pride, they could be many, many other things. We have so many. Um, we could be driven by our desires, our lusts, our passion for various things. You know, it might not seem like it, but if you are a person, and I hope I'm not going to upset anyone here, but if you're a person who is easily offended, then the chances are that the feeling that drives your life is pride. Pride masquerades itself in principles and righteousness. And it can easily turn to the point where you become prickly with it. And it's driving you. Are you a person who easily gets irritated or angry with other people? I used to be so like both of those things. And if, you, if you're easily irritated or angered, it's possible that you're being driven by fear. Fear of losing control. Fear of what other people might think of you. Fear What's the other fear that we're all driven by? It's fear of the unknown, really. Fear of the future. If we're being driven by our feelings, then our faith is shaky. We could question whether God is real. We could question our salvation. We can't build on our feelings because they move, they change every day. They're not a solid foundation. Build your life on your feelings and you're like the man who built his house on the sand. It's not solid ground. When we build our life on our feelings, then we look at the words in the Bible and they don't really mean an awful lot to us. We can't really trust what it says. 
We might listen to the testimony of other believers and they say, oh, God did this and God did that and God said this and God said that. And you like, yeah, but that's for you. That doesn't work for me. And it's not something that you trust in. So the people in Nehemiah, what did they do? When they wanted to recommit themselves to God, point one, they studied the word. So it says here, verse It says, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, and as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. I'm jumping to verse 7. The Levites, there's a big list of names there, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. They studied the word. They looked at the word. They studied the word. They tried their best to understand the word. The people had a holy hunger for God's word, which was birthed out of the experience of seeing what had been accomplished through the building of the wall. And I've put there a verse which many of us know really well, Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 12, which says, um, for the word of God is alive and living like a two-edged sword. And when we study the word, it builds our faith. It overrides our feelings. It reveals to us who God is. If you've never done this, and, and I, I have to say I have done this a couple of times. I'm on my third, third go through now. It usually takes me a few years. Read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in order all the way through. Don't miss, don't miss out Leviticus or Numbers or any of the other books. Read everything all the way through from beginning to end. It will blow your mind. It will build your faith. It gives you an overview of a picture of how God has interacted with mankind from creation to revelation, from the beginning to the end. It is an amazing experience. It might take a while, though. When the people had read the word and studied the word, verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This passage shows the attitudes of worship that the people had. Attitudes of reverence. They stood, they lifted their hands, they praised him, they knelt to the ground, they put their faces to the ground, and they worshipped him. Our whole lives can be an attitude of worship. Our whole 
every single day, everything we do can be lived in an attitude of worship when we understand how great our God is. We can walk through life so grateful and thankful for the blessings God has put upon us that our whole, our whole reason for being becomes worship. And you know what? Sometimes I manage that for a short time and it's just an amazing way to live. Usually busyness and the events of the day and stresses and strains overcome that attitude of worship. But I pray for the day when I will literally walk through a whole day with that attitude on my heart and not lose it and not let it slip through my fingers. Because the rebuilt walls resulted in protection. They were protected from their enemies. When we rebuild our walls of faith, we get protection from God. We get protection from negative feelings, from negative influences. We are able to walk through the day in an attitude of worship. Rebuilt walls produce peace. Because peace is not when everything's still and quiet. Peace is when we can maintain that attitude of worship in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the bad things that happen to us, in the middle of trials. Rebuilt walls resulted in prosperity. When you've got peace, you have room, you have, you have time to grow, you have the space to get things right. And I'm not talking about money. I'm just talking about general well-being type of prosperity, where things are going well, your business is going well, your family's going well, your, your job is going well. Rebuilt walls result in purpose. We gain a new sense of purpose in how we can serve God. The people of Jerusalem had a new purpose, a renewed purpose. And all of that leads us to praise and worship our God. When we see all those things come together, and we see those things coming together in people, it brings a sense of unity. And I've, I've always admired the story of the Moravians, Moravians were people who lived in Germany at the start of the 18th century. A little community of about 300 people with a dysfunctional church that was squabbling and quarreling about all sorts of things. And a small group of young people in that church decided that they were going to start a 24-7 prayer movement. In 1727, they started their 24-7 prayer movement. They had 24 men and women who each prayed together for an hour every day, right around the clock. They did that for 100 years. They sent missionaries all over the world. Some of them even sold themselves into slavery to reach the lost who were slaves. They went all over the place, including America, and I believe it was in America that John Wesley 
met some of the Moravians and was strongly influenced. And when he came back to the UK, his whole attitude was changed. His whole picture of how big God was was changed. And what was the result of that? Massive revival throughout the United Kingdom. But you see, we have their motto, which was, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. You see, as a congregation, we may not always agree with each other all the time. But if it's not essential, does that matter? Let's just love each other. And then this wonderful mission statement that they have, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. He, oh, next slide helps. He faced the cross for the joy set before him. What is the joy set before him? You are the joy set before him. You are the joy set before Christ when he faced the cross. <laughs> so Hebrews 12 verse 2 said, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that brings me to the next bit of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8, verse 9 to 10, the joy of the Lord. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the word of the law. Nehemiah said, go, and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you might say, the joy of the Lord is my strength? I don't even know what that means. What does it mean? The literal translation is, the rejoicing of the Lord is my stronghold. In other words, it's not our joy that is our strength. It's his joy over us that is our strength. Remember that you are the joy for which Jesus faced the cross. Zephaniah Chapter 3, verse 17 says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. You are his delight. So many of us have children, and an awful lot of us have grandchildren. What is the delight of your heart? Your children, your grandchildren. You delight in them. You adore them. They are the light of your life, the apple of your eye. In the same way, you are God's children and he adores you. You are his delight. You are his joy. He loves you so, so, so much. And that is our strength. That 
is what drives us. That is what keeps us going. That is what helps us to carry on when we're losing our voice and times are tough and we really haven't got the energy to do what we want to do. So we go back to the train, the faith train. This time, oh, this time, our lives are driven by facts. The facts are the word of God. If we are a believer, we should be trusting that the word of God is the word of God. The Bible is from God, and in it, it has his direction, his will, his instruction. And when we read the whole of the Bible, we can see that he does what he says he will do. We can trust him because he is faithful, he is mighty to save, he is strong, he is omnipotent, omnipresent, he is all-knowing and wonderful. He loves us. It says in his word, he loves us. We can also look at the testimony of other believers when they say, I heard from God. God told me this, and I, and I followed through, and that happened. We can look at that testimony, and we can believe it because it ties up with what is said in the word of God. We're building our life on facts, not feelings. When we build our life on facts, then our faith comes into line with those facts. Our worship becomes a way of life. Our prayer becomes something that we, we, we just automatically go to. Prayer should be our automatic go-to every time we don't know what to do. Every time we do think we know what to do, prayer should be our go-to. And what should be the last thing down the line, right at the end of the train, a hundred carriages down, our feelings. But now you see our feelings come into line with what God says about us. Our feelings, our feelings of being beloved, of being worthy, of trusting in his righteousness and not our righteousness, of trusting in his joy and not relying on our joy, on trusting in a God that is mighty to save, that is for us and not against us. That's the faith train. You see, C.S. Lewis said, the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Faith should be faith no matter what you're feeling today, no matter how difficult things are. We can hold on to that solid rock that is faith. I had a picture once uh, when, when I was going through a difficult time. I don't know if any of you have been to the waterfall in... Um, there's a waterfall in Estrefelter that you can walk behind. It's called, I think it's called Skur Ira. You can walk behind it. And there's sort of like some big rocks in front of it. And um, in this picture, I was sort of swam through the pool and climbed up on the rocks in the waterfall. And it was very gentle. There wasn't much water in the river, so it was just sort of pitter-pattering down on me. And I climbed and sort of clung onto the rock there. And then... The water, the river was starting to flood and the water got heavier and heavier and heavier. 
until there was an absolute deluge pouring down on me. And I was clinging to that rock with all my strength. And the water was trying to wash me off. But no, and in, in, my, in my picture, God was saying, no, you cling to me. And it doesn't matter how, how high the river gets. It doesn't matter how bad the flood gets. You'll be safe here. So, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5 to 6, talks about the greatness of God. And before I mentioned testimony, and my vision of God has, has expanded rapidly recently because I've been actively seeking out, looking at testimony of other believers and one of the things I've been listening to is a podcast called Exploring the Prophetic and it's not really about prophecy as such but it's about conversations with people who've heard a word from God and then acted on that word and the result that that has had on their lives so it's just like interviews and, and conversations about what God has done in people's lives and this podcast has had interviews with actresses and actors, musicians, businessmen, pastors, ordinary people from all over the world, from places like South America, North America, Canada, the UK. And the podcast has been revelatory because it's shown to me that God is interested in every detail of our lives. People have had words about their businesses. People have had words about their family. People have had words about their church. People have had words to move to a different place and been really greatly blessed by what God has done as a result of their faithfulness. And it's really helped build my faith because it's helped me to see God at work today in a way that he was at work in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. The stories, you know, they're like straight out of what God said in the Bible. It has really helped to build my, build my faith. Adrian? <coughs> so, the people of Jerusalem the Levites, Ezra, Nehemiah, are standing before God. They've studied the word. They've repented. And now the Levites said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. They had a big picture. Their God was truly great. And this is a, the bridge from one of my favorite songs at the minute called So Will I. It says, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. If the mountains bow in reverence, so will I. 
If the oceans roar your praises, so will I. For if everything exists to lift you high, so will I. If the wind goes where you send it, so will I. If the rocks cry out in silence, so will I. If the sum of all our praises still falls shy, then we'll sing again a hundred billion times. And the song takes us from a God that created the whole universe to the God who cares so deeply about the one. The last line of the song says, you're the one who never leaves the one behind. He cares so deeply about you as an individual, about each individual person, saved or not. He loves all. And we, as a church, our mission is to bring his kingdom to the community, to the unsaved. But if we're going to do that, we need this big, big picture of our God. We need to know how amazing he is. And I asked God once to reveal to me how amazing he was and how big he was. Be careful if you ever do that. Because I saw a picture of Jesus, and he stood like this, and in his left hand, he held some coals, some burning coals. And in his right hand, there was a blue light that turned into a sword, a shining blue sword. The coals are like the, the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, the sword is the word. And as I looked at him, he grew, and he got bigger, and bigger, and bigger, and bigger, and bigger. And as he grew, he kind of changed, and, and he was the lamb, and then the lion, and then a mighty warrior, and then a man, and, and he just kept changing. The vision of him just changed as he got bigger and bigger and bigger until he was so, well, just like colossal, enormous. He filled my vision. And as he looked down towards where I was stood, it was almost as if there was like, his, his eyes became like beams of light. And everywhere he looked, the earth was lit up in a bright white light. And I have never been so terrified in my whole life. I was so afraid. And I knew that if he looked at me, I would die. But I didn't care. Because there was this, this ecstasy of, of terror and, and desperation all at the same time. I was so terrified that he would look at me, but I was so desperately, desperately wanted him to see me. It was like, look at me, see me. And if I die, it doesn't, I don't care. And that picture of God of the greatness of God, of the terrifying reality of this spiritual being we call God has stayed with me ever since. How great is your God? How big is your picture of God? Does your picture of God leave you lost in wonder? 
we're going to sing some more worship songs now and we're going to do communion as well. And if you've been challenged by today, if you feel that, no, you know what, I need a bigger picture of God, then ask him for one. But don't cry about it. (laughs) Don't weep about it. Rejoice in the Lord because the joy of the Lord is your strength.